One well-known interrogation technique used by law enforcement is good cop, bad cop. Ever heard of that? <laughs> right? It's when two officers will trade off questioning a subject using different techniques, opposing approaches. So one, uh, one officer will enter the room and just lay into the subject. Right, that they'll be aggressive, they'll be harsh with them, and then they'll leave, and the other one will come in, and they'll act kindly and sympathetically, give them a listening ear. And the bad cop's goal is to scare the person, and the good cop's goal is to win their trust. Right, so that ultimately the subject would hopefully cooperate with or open up to the good cop, or just give in to the bad one. Now. I have to say that this technique is used all the time in the media, in movies and in TV. I have no idea how often it's used in real life. But anyway, in our scripture today, Job's friend Eliphaz speaks up again. And Eliphaz might as well have been using good cop, bad cop. Except as one person. Like the two-faced cop in the Lego movie, right? This is how extreme the swings of his emotions seem to be in this passage. One minute he's Job's harshest accuser, and then the next he's his hopeful friend. His hopeful friend. So, will this technique work? Where he and his companions have failed before, will he get through to Job with truth? Or is he still wrong? And if so, will Job be able to stand strong? We shall see. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 22 with me. Job chapter 22. That's on page 431 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. We're over halfway through Job now. So we've come a a long way since Job lost everything. But of course, as you know, he's, he's still hurting big time. He's still distraught and confused, relatively hopeless. Now, I think you may have noticed, if you've been with us, how his hope has seemed to grow over time. But before we go further, before we read these verses, I just ask you again to pause and pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we open your word and we read these words that were written so long ago, may they impact us today. May your spirit teach us and guide us and grow us. May we be convicted, may we be encouraged, and may we be changed. God, we pray that each heart here would be open to hear from you what you have to say to them through this time. And we rely on your power now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So ever since chapter 4 about it, it's kind of like we've been on a hamster wheel. Going around and around. It's Job's friends say something, and then Job responds, and then the friends basically say the same thing, and then Job responds, and then they say the same thing. Just over and over again. And in chapter 22, we reach the end of a second cycle of speeches, where all three friends spoke to Job a second time. Now we're going to be starting the third cycle. And as usual, Eliphaz goes first. He's always the first one to speak. But this is his third and final time, his parting shot at Job. And his, his speech doubles as both one of the harshest and one of those most beautiful of all of them. But he starts out, guns blazing. Here comes bad cop, okay, along with his probing questions. Verse 1, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man 
be profitable to God. Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it any gain to him if you make your ways blameless? In other words, does God benefit from your moral life? It doesn't matter to him. Now, you know, of course it matters to God how we live. But in Eliphaz's eyes, Job seemed to be acting as if God was, enti- or he was entitled to a response from God. So Eliphaz is like, God's not indebted to you or obligated to you in any way. Now the implied answers to his questions here were, no, you cannot profit or please God. And I'll tell you right away, that's actually incorrect. Okay? While it's true that God is not indebted to us or obligated to us, the Bible is clear, we also can truly please him. We can bring him glory. And we know from Job's story that, in fact, God was receiving glory through Job's life. We know that for sure. Now, Eliphaz's question is also wrong in verse 4. He says, Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? He thought, There's no way. God couldn't be reproving or, or punishing you because you've been good. That just doesn't happen. But actually, though Job wasn't being punished, the fact that Job was godly is precisely why he was suffering. You're here to hear the rest of the story. Now, we know this, but Eliphaz didn't. Or at least he didn't believe it was possible. In his mind, God couldn't be personally affected by our sins or by our virtues. Therefore, the cause of our sufferings or our blessings had to lie with us. If we're blessed, it's because we're good. And if we're cursed, it's because we're sinful. And so, bad cop Eliphaz reaches his bad conclusion in verse 5. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. (laughs) The message puts these verses, verse 3 to 5, this way. It says, so what if you were righteous? Would God Almighty even notice? Even if you gave a perfect performance, do you think he'd applaud? Do you think it's because he cares about your purity that he's disciplining you, putting you on the spot? Hardly. It's because you're a first-class moral failure, because there's no end to your sins. Kind of gives you the sense of what he's trying to say. Now, up till now, there have been a lot of implicit accusations against Job, but nothing explicit. They had been clearly hinting that they felt Job was guilty, but they weren't directly saying that. Well, no more beating around the bush here. Eliphaz is like the prosecution in a courtroom drama. Is it not true that you were, in fact, at the scene of the crime? You're guilty! Right? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. So he's come to the conclusion that Job has to be a terrible sinner. And he's got a pretty good idea of, of what sins he thinks Job's actually committed. Look in verse, at the end of 5, it says, There's no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed land, speaking of Job, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. So, 
We know Job had been a, a very powerful man, a very rich man, wealthy, influential. And Eliphaz believes that he must have abused his power. It's the only explanation for what was happening to him. By, he had abused it by being exacting or cruel or selfish or tyrannical, pushing around the most vulnerable of society. Therefore, it wasn't surprising in the least that Job was suffering. He deserved no less. Verse 10 says, Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Now, these have been common pictures used to describe Job's sufferings, right? Snares or traps, terror, deepest darkness he can't see, floodwaters threatening to drown him. Job, you're abundantly evil. What else would you expect? You've got to stop acting like you're so special. You're, just, you're really just a miserable worm of a man. And God? Well, God is great beyond our wildest imaginations. Look in verse 12. It says, Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. Now here, at the heart of Eliphaz's message is possibly the best thing he says. God is high above us. Okay, the, the theologian's term is transcendent. God is infinitely above created things. Uh, how do you feel when you go stargazing? Ever go out in the countryside, look up at the stars, the beauty of them? How do you feel? It's an old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip where Calvin is outside just staring up into space, just looking, pondering, and then all of a sudden he yells out, I'm significant! And then he mutters under his breath, scream the dust speck. (laughs) You ever feel that way? Eliphaz is telling Job, look up at the stars. Consider how small you are and how big God is. Right? Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty, are, how lofty they are. And then with concern in his voice, Eliphaz tells Job, but you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he, and he walks on the vault of heaven. It's like, Job, you're casting doubt on God's greatness. You're questioning his knowledge. Now, there is actually no evidence that Job ever said anything like this. But this was Eliphaz's impression, his assumption. He thought Job was belittling God. Imagining that God didn't know, that he didn't see, that he didn't care about him. And therefore, Job's refusal to repent was ticking him 
off. Look in verse 15. It's like, will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, surely our adversaries are cut off. And what they left, the fire has consumed. So this is a picture of wicked people in the past who wanted nothing to do with God. And though God blessed them abundantly for a short time, verse 16 said, they were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. Meanwhile, the righteous are glad and rejoice at God's justice in verse 19 and 20. And Eliphaz's point is that Job should learn from these people's past mistakes. These mistakes have already been made. So repent before you're snatched away or washed away yourself. Job, Job, you're traveling a well-worn road. It's been traveled before. Be warned. Here's Eliphaz's overarching point from this whole chapter. is that God's transcendent greatness should inspire humility and repentance. God is so great and we are so small that we must be humble and repent. God's transcendent greatness should inspire humility and repentance in, in us. And here is where good cop Eliphaz enters. Right? Job, you are evil. Oh, but Job, you can be saved. Look in verse 21. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay your gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you. Light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say it's because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. So, if you just humbly repent, God will save you from your distress. Agree with God. Be at peace. Receive instruction. Return to Him. Remove injustice. Job keeps saying that he wants to argue his case with God. Eliphaz says, you should settle your case out of court. Just agree with Him. Verse 24, he encourages Job to lay his gold in the dust. Implying that he thought gold must have effectively been Job's God, and thus Job's downfall. So to lay his gold in the dust, or the riverbed, the torrent bed, it says, he was, it would mean to cast it back where it came from, to abandon the wealth and the power that he'd abused, to cast down his idols. And verse 25 is beautiful in its contrast. Verse 24, lay your gold in the dust. Verse 25, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. 
This is the best motive so far given in Job. If you renounce your worldly gold, God himself will become your gold. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It sounds like what he should have been saying all along. Remember back at the beginning, Satan, when he came to God and and dared God to wreck Job, he thought that Job worshipped God because of God's blessings. And so, and so far, Job's friends have simply echoed Satan's motives. It's like saying, you should repent in order to regain God's blessings. Well, we cannot worship God to get his stuff. We must worship God to get God. And so it's refreshing to hear Eliphaz try to motivate Job with, you know, then, for then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. It's too bad he doesn't only say that. That would have been great. But he also promises that Job's life will turn around. Verse 21 says, good will come to you. Verse 23 says, you will be built up. And then Eliphaz makes a blatant guarantee in verse 28. The New Living Translation puts it this way, whatever you decide to do will be accomplished and light will shine on the road ahead of you. Finally, verse 29 and 30 says that even other sinful people will also be blessed through Job's life. He'll be a blessing to others too. End of speech. So, was Eliphaz right? Was his good cop, bad cop routine more good or bad? Well, there are a couple little theological problems here or there in these verses. But if you focus on that main point, God's transcendent greatness should inspire humility and repentance. I don't see anything wrong with his main point. This is good theology. Okay? In light of how great and how holy God is, we should feel small and sinful. Therefore, it should inspire us to humbly fall on our knees and get right with God. If you haven't done that before, I'd urge you to do it today. Because you are sinful, bound for hell, and God is holy. And yet God can save you if you believe in him. But Eliphaz, unfortunately, took his good theology too far. To the point where God is so transcendent that we couldn't ever please him. We saw that in verse 3. To the point of being extremely judgmental and presumptuous about Job's sin in verse 5 and and on from there. And to the point of over-promising a beautiful life now if only Job would repent. Really, Eliphaz's whole argument rested on false accusations. There is no evidence that Job had done what Eliphaz claimed he did. And so, good theology taken too far combined with false accusations led to wrong conclusions. God wasn't punishing Job. Job didn't need to be warned about these things. Job didn't need to repent. He already had. So, Eliphaz's exhortation was completely irrelevant to Job. He needed comfort, not judgment. 
Have you ever been accused of doing something you didn't do? Maybe by a, a brother or sister? Or a coworker who tried to get you in trouble for something? Or maybe your parents accused you of something you weren't guilty of? How does that make you feel? Confused? Betrayed? Angry? Frustrated? It's probably how Job felt here. Beginning of chapter 23, he says he is bitter. And he felt that, once again, he needed to set the record straight. And to this end, over the next two chapters, Job makes a couple major points as a response. One negative and one positive. Here's the first one. God's unstoppable greatness can invoke confusion and fear. God is so great that it can actually make us confused and afraid like he was there. doesn't mean it should, but God's unstoppable greatness can invoke confusion and fear. Listen to how Job puts it, beginning of chapter 23. And Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that's God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me or crush me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he, was, when, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. So do you, do you get what Job is wanting to do here? He wishes he could find God, and then that he could approach God's throne to make his case before his judge. Verse 3, Oh, that I might knew where, or, or that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. He's aching to meet with God because he believes then that he'd be able to understand what's happening to him and why. He also feels that there he'd be proven right and he'd be vindicated. Verse 7, There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. But right now, Job feels that he can't find God. He can't perceive God's plans or his purposes. Now, why would that be? It's connected to what Eliphaz was talking about, actually. It's God's greatness. That he's so great and he's so transcendent above us that we can't even sense him. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This can be a comforting thought or a disconcerting one. Or both. You ever felt that way? You're confused as to why God has led you down a certain path in life with no answers. Or you wonder why he's allowed you to lose a job. And you're afraid of the future. Or you don't know why he's taken a loved one or an unborn one away from you. 
or you're dismayed by reading the news. You can't perceive God working at all on the right or the left. You can echo Job's words here. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he was working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. You are allowed to be afraid and confused by life. Just don't give up on God in those times. Run to him in those times, like Job did. Ache to meet with him. But then remember that one of the most repeated phrases in all of Scripture is do not be afraid. And if you've been forgiven by him for your sins, you can have confidence, even more than Job had here, that you will be acquitted one day before your judge. Why? Because you know with even more certainty that there is one before the throne who has gone before you, who has paid for your sins, and who now pleads for you for your defense. Just know that for the time being, not everything will make sense. Are you okay with that? Sometimes, maybe bad, sometimes we may be left terrified. Even, even terrified by God. Look down in verse 13. It says, Job says, But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider I am in dread of him, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. This is how unstoppable God is. So Job was both confident about approaching God's throne and terrified to do so. He desired to meet with him, and he dreaded meeting with him at the same time. How is it possible to be so confident and scared at the same time? Well, I'm quite sure that we'd feel the exact same way if we approached God's throne. (laughs) Petrified by his power, but beckoned near by his love. And even though Job was terrified, he was not silenced. And this is crucial. Did you see that in verse 17? Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. He feared God, and appropriately so, but he was learning in that to not be afraid of the dark. Don't ever let the darkness silence your prayers. especially if you feel like Job did here. He openly wondered where God's justice was when good people suffer. Look in verse 1 of chapter 24. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Now that never is definitely an exaggeration. But Job just couldn't understand. Why did it seem like God never stood up for his people? Or why he never seemed to judge evil? 
And so his, the emotions of Job continue to seesaw. And realistically so. One minute he's full of boldness and confidence. The next he's full of questions and doubts. Chapter 24 is just filled with Job's struggle to believe. All driven by that question in verse 1. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Why do those who know him never see his days? What follows is essentially an inventory of common crimes of injustice. And, and Job is asking, why, how do these wicked, wicked people get away with all this? Look at verse 2. Some people move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them, so they steal land and property from others. Verse 3, they drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. So the poor and the needy are brutally abused by the powerful, which leads to pathetic living conditions for the poor. Verse 5, behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking games. They have to search, they have to hunt in the desert for games. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field, and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked without clothing. They have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. And so they're homeless, hungry, naked, cold, wet, and unsheltered. And even then, wicked wicked people's evil knows no bounds. Look in verse 9. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast, and they take a pledge against the poor. So they don't only seize property or force people into poverty, they'll even snatch orphaned babies or children away. Perhaps, they're talking about here, even forcing the poor to sell their own children into slavery. Needy people's plight can be cruelly unjust. Look in verse 10. They go about naked without clothing. Hungry, they carry the sheaves. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil. They tread the wine presses, but suffer thirst. So, you get what they're saying there? They are painfully close to prosperity. Working for the wealthy, wicked people. They are hungry, but they're forced to only harvest the food, not eat it. They're thirsty, but forced to tread out the wine that will be drunk by others. It's like making someone who is starving to death work in a grocery store. And so people justifiably groan against this injustice. Verse 12, from out of the city the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help, yet God charges no one with wrong. Now you don't have to look very hard into the annals of history to see injustices like these everywhere. From marginalization to abuse to land grabs to slavery to concentration camps. We also don't have to look very far today to see injustices like these exist now. <laughs> Is this ever appropriate for what we watched unfold this week? But, but otherwise, there are 27 million modern-day slaves who have been trafficked around the world. There's 
famished poor people. We've, we see them in TV commercials and presentations and things. They're, they're starving to death. They're thirsting to death. From the dictatorial slumlords in the poorest areas of earth to the military conscription of and brainwashing of small children by military groups and terrorist groups. What Job describes here is brutally honest, real life. And so he wonders, along with many, likely many of us, why, God? Why? Why not bring justice now? Why, as verse 12 says, does God seem to charge no one with wrong? After all, sinful people just keep getting away with murder and all kinds of other crimes. Look at verse 13. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways and do not stay in its path. The murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me, and he veils his face. In the dark they dig through houses. By day they shut themselves up. They do not know the light, for deep darkness is morning to all of them, for they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. Now, we have talked a lot about this throughout Job. Was God actually being unjust? Is God being unjust? No. This was Job's perception, as it is sometimes our perception of things from here down on earth. But if we believe the Bible to be true, and we believe that God is sovereignly working out his plan... That's even when we can't perceive it. He will steer history to his desired end, guaranteed. Maybe justice delayed, but it's not justice denied. And every single injustice will not go unpunished, either on the back of Christ on the cross or in hell for eternity. God is never indifferent to injustice. He will execute justice. Vengeance will be his. The question we must ask is, is our theology robust enough to account for reality? We have a tendency to make things a lot simpler than they really are, like Job's friends. But life is often far more complicated than we make it out to be. We must never compromise what we know to be true about God based on Scripture. But we'll still have plenty of unanswered questions in our world, this broken world on this side of eternity. Job had plenty. And here, Job repeats something that he's wondered about before. It's like, guys, you think that the wicked perish, but I, I've seen God bless them. Look in verse 18. It's like, you say, 
Swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward their vineyards. Drought and heat snatch away the snow waters. So does Sheol, or the grave, those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is like a broken tree. They wrong the barren, childless woman and do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security and they are supported and his eye is upon their ways. Did you notice that last line? His eyes are upon their ways. So, even though they're blessed, God is still watching them. He sees and he cares. Which leads Job to his conclusion. So I don't understand it all. I've got questions. I don't. I might not see it as totally fair right now. However, I still believe that God won't bless them forever. Look in verse twenty-four. They are exalted a little while, and then are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say? So yes, God's unstoppable greatness can invoke confusion and fear. But that's not the only point Job tries to get across here. Job clearly has questions and doubts. But despite our present doubts, God's dependable greatness will instigate vindication and justice. And God is faithful, steadfast, and reliable, and he will bring justice. God's dependable greatness will instigate vindication and justice one day. That's the, end, the message of the end of chapter 24. It says, they're exalted a little while and then are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar? Now, he's like he's saying, no, they're not like broken trees now, Eliphaz. They're still growing like grain. But those heads of grain will be cut off one day. The harvest is coming. This is some serious trust, considering what was going on in his life. But this trust in, in God's justice is also seen earlier in Job's words. You might have noticed, if you're paying attention, that we skipped over a few verses earlier. You notice that? Right in the middle of chapter 23, at the very heart of Job's speech, Job makes yet another incredible statement of trust. With these chapters, I, I think Job may as well have been saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Look, at, look back at chapter 23, see what he firmly believes. Start in verse 7. We read these, but then we'll go on from there. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he was working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. In verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. 
I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. In other words, Job's conscience is clear. He knows his sin hadn't earned him his suffering. So he trusts that in the end, he will receive his vindication from God. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. He was right. His devotion to God was being tried and tested, not punished. Isn't it interesting that we now use tried and tested to refer to something that's really good? If something goes through fire and survives, it comes out better on the other side. This is Job's point by saying he will come out as gold in verse 10. If you're wearing a ring right now or some other gold jewelry, take it in your hands now. If not, think of a piece of jewelry that you have or that you've seen before. This gold was not always like this. It was part of a rock, right? And at some point, it was likely mined out of a cave or was fished out of a riverbed. And it would have had all kinds of impurities in it. So how do you purify gold? You put it in the furnace. And you burn away everything else. And once it's been purified, once it's, while it's still molten metal, you can shape it into a ring or something else beautiful out of it. Now, Job may not have been thinking of purification as much as vindication, being proven right or being proven to be pure. But either way, it is a vivid picture of coming out on the other side better than he was before. Did you notice the recurrence of becoming like gold in today's passage? Eliphaz had just talked in in chapter 22 about God becoming Job's gold. Francis Anderson says, There, Eliphaz urged Job to make God his most precious thing. Here, Job is saying that he is precious to God. Only valued metal is put through the fire. Have you considered that before? Only valued, precious metal is put through the fire. Our trials are not signs of God's apparent apathy or absence. Sometimes, our trials are actually signs that God loves us. He wants us to go through the furnace, to become like gold for his glory. Job had full confidence this would happen to him. And why? First of all, because he knew God's greatness was dependable. God was faithful. But also because Job himself had a clear conscience before God. We just read about that. It's like, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Now my question for you, can we say these verses ourselves with a clear conscience? Can you? And if not, What would it take for us to be able to do so? What still needs to be repented of? 
What still needs to be confessed? What secrets are we keeping? Where are we not trusting Jesus? That we have to be honest about our sin and that we still sin. Under Jesus' grace, we should be able to have a clean and clear conscience before him. Because every sin we ever commit has been paid for by him. And that's really what we must remind ourselves here. Because the furnace that Jesus went through was the strongest furnace of all. He was already infinitely purer than Job was, and yet his sufferings were even worse than Job. And that ha- they had to be because he was taking on the impurities of the whole world. But once he died, going through hell's furnace, he was fully vindicated. He came out of the tomb as gold. Proven to be the Savior of the world. We must trust Him. We have to trust Him. For even in His death and His resurrection, we see a promise there of future justice. If you trust Him, I won't promise you today that your life will be amazing now. Because it might not be. But one day... You'll come out of the furnace of this life as pure gold. And your life will shine for the glory of God. There's an old Chinese proverb that goes, True gold fears no fire. True gold fears no fire. Randy Alcorn says, Fire strengthens those it refines. They do not seek the fire, but neither do they shrink from it. And here, Job found himself in a dance of fearing it and then not fearing it at all, and fearing it, not fearing it. And when we do find ourselves fearing or shrinking from it, we can take a page from Job's book. We can long for God's presence. We can pray for his deliverance. And we can trust his heart. Let me remind us, Lord, have mercy and Hosanna or save us. Your kingdom come. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And how long, O Lord, are all very biblical prayers. Each one of them recognizes that something is not as it should be now. And each one of them seeks to find the answer only in God. Exactly whom we should be longing for all along. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray these things this morning. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our world. Save us now. Hosanna, Lord. May your kingdom come quickly when we see injustice. May we trust you. Come quickly to save us. And we ask, along with Job, how long? Why? May you turn our hearts towards you today. And trust 
and in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.